to take us in our Bible today to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 23, as we continue on. This is uh, week four. Week four. It sounds daunting when I say that. It's week four of like a 45-week series that we're going to be doing. Um, uh, how many of you in just the, the three short weeks that we've been in this have gotten something out of this series so far? Okay. Uh, so ahead, like, work with me, okay? Actually, raise your hand. Some of you are like, I will not do anything that you ask me to do when it comes to raising my hands, okay? Just work with me. How many of you are, like, excited to, to be sitting in an almost year-long series? Like, how many of you are like, I'm actually here for this. I'm, I'm here for this. Okay, most of you. All right, fantastic. Uh, the first service, they weren't here for it. So, um, but uh, that's why I like this service better. I'm just kidding. Uh, so... We're going to take, just so i kind of clear, we're going to take some detours in this series as well. There are going to be a couple little mini-series that we do uh, in it coming up in just a little while. We're going to be talking about relationships, marriages, singleness, there's some stuff coming up in First Peter. Uh, but we've got to get through this first chapter. There's a lot of introductory stuff, a lot of really strong truths that Peter's going to present to us. And that's what we've kind of been working through over the next, uh, over these past few weeks and then over the next few weeks. Uh, today, I'm going to teach a little bit differently than I normally do, so I need you to do me a massive favor. I need you to have your notebooks out right now, okay, Bibles, and I need you to just lean in with me because we're going to do some teaching today. We're going to take a, a, a walk down philosophy lane, okay? How many of you majored in philosophy or took philosophy classes? Show of hands. Oh, great. Okay, you guys just plug your ears because I'm going to botch a lot of stuff. And um, and uh, I'm going to speak really broadly to some philosophy stuff. Uh, just go with me on it. And here's the premise before we get to the scripture today. The reason that we're going to take a trip down philosophy lane is because there's this growing uh, kind of thought uh, in our culture today that says we are the purveyors of this new truth that we're sitting in. And I want to just strongly push against that a lot of the stuff that we're dealing with in our culture today is not new. Hello, it's, it's not new. We're not that genius. Uh, we just put Instagram in its hands, and so now it goes faster at us, right? We are just talking to some people in between services, and, and it took centuries for philosophy to really gain steam, right? You're, you're talking not like, we're going to walk through this day, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th. From the 14th century to the 20th century, it took a lot of steam to get to these thought processes and to arrive at some of the conclusions that the world has arrived at, right? The problem with the, the, the place that we're in now is that social media technology is pushing it faster. So what took 100 years before is taking nanoseconds now. It's, it's clicking on this whole other level. And so uh, we're all being bombarded with different thought processes and truths and realities. And so uh, Peter's going to say something to us right here in, in chapter 1, verses 13 to 23, that if we're very honest, carries a lot of weight and, albeit, is somewhat offensive to the generation that we're living in right now. Listen to what he says. He says, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you about the revelation of Jesus Christ. We like that part. That's good news. As obedient children, no, stop. You said obedient. I don't like that word. I'm an independent man. I'm an independent woman. Obedience, come on, somebody, is a really difficult notion for us, right? We value, especially in, in Western uh, society and in America, especially we in, we like we value to the tenth degree our independence and our ability to be my own. So obedient. Don't tell me to be obedient. It's like some of you won't even raise your hand when I ask you to raise your hand. You're like, no, I'm not going to do it. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, here it is. This is really offensive. You also to be holy in all of your conduct. 
for it's written, Be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you're to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. Now Peter is going to, he's going to proof once again this, this idea of you are here, strangers, sojourners, exiles. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So Peter now is affirming some of the strictest terms of our orthodoxy, that Jesus Christ was born, lived, ministered, died, was placed in the grave, three days later rose and ascended into heaven. Our faith is in him, our trust is in him, our hope is in him, our salvation is in him, not in anything else or anyone alone, and it's not by, it's not by our works, but it's by faith in him that we are saved. That's what Peter's affirming right now. You can't earn it, you can't buy it, you can't get it at Walmart, you will not pick it up at bulk at Costco. It's Jesus and only Jesus. Are we with each other today? So that's what he's affirming, right? And since you've purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, from a pure heart, love one another constantly because you have been born again. Not a perishable seed, but imperishable, though through the living and enduring word of God. So today I want to continue on our series, You Are Here. And I want to speak to you from this subject right here. Faith in a brave new world. Faith in a brave new world. As we deal with what Peter says, our conduct, the way we conduct ourselves with reverence during our time living as strangers. We pray for you just one more time today. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's alive, it's active, it has the ability to change us from the inside out. God, we need your word. We do not need my words, we need your word. So I pray right now that you would move me out of the way. That you would renew a right spirit in me. If there's any way of offensiveness in me, God, that you should move it. I want to speak clearly with purity today. So I thank you for your word. It's the word that we rest our lives on. It's the word that everything finds its firm foundation in. And we thank you that your revealed word brings truth to our lives, and where there's truth, it sets us free. So we love you, we honor you in this moment today, in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, let me shout it. Amen. Um, I, I, uh, I graduated high school in the year 2000. 2000. So, not too long ago. 22 years ago. My goodness, that, was, that is a long time ago, actually. Um, can I say, just show of hands, how many of you graduated high school in between the years of 2010 and 2022? Just show of hands. My goodness. Everybody look around. Show your hands. Big, big and tall. You graduated. So be proud. Okay. Show of hands, 2010 to 2022, where are you at? I want to I see. This is, this is crazy. Wow. All right. Well, congratulations. You survived. Okay, so when I was in high school, ninth grade, I had to read a book in English called The Brave New World. How many of you have read this book before? Show of hands. How many of you have read this book before? Okay, not very many of you. All right. How many of you have heard of this book before but decided not to read it? So I read this in ninth grade. I decided when we were on uh, when we were on a trip that I just wanted to read it again. I'm gonna be really honest with you. Here's what I did. I went down the rabbit hole. So I bought this book. I bought 1984. I bought Animal Farm. Um, uh, <laughs> we did all the books. So we did like it, I went I went buck wild at the at the beginning of 2020. Um, 
And uh, so I read this book. I recently got done with it. And I was fascinated, one, that they actually allowed us to read a book like this in ninth grade. Um, but at the same time, I think it's really important to read. Now, if, if you read any commentary on this book right here, uh, he is famed as almost being, uh, without putting faith to it, so let me just be careful, but famed as almost being prophetic to the cultural nuances that we find ourselves in now. Stuff that he was writing about when he wrote this book now is quite common fare and common thought in, in our world right now. There's stuff that he, he dreamt about and put in this book as he, writed this, as he wrote this novel that when he wrote this, it seemed so far-fetched. I mean, it was sci-fi material. It was way out there. The, the technological advancements, the way society was working, the way the culture was working, the way that people engaged with one another. It, it, was, it was written in such a way that the people that read this was like, he's off his rocker. He's nuts. Until you're living in this moment today. How many of you have ever said when we see the things that are happening around us, we go, that's nuts? Well, he, he wrote about it in vague ways at times, but he wrote about it. And so I've been on this little journey recently of, of really trying to help us as a church settle into what our, our orthodoxy and, and biblical truth helps us understand and stand firm in, in this cultural moment and in this generation. So that's why we're working through the Bible in the way that we're working through it. And here's what I want us to understand is that Peter is very clear about the moments that we are living in. And while he doesn't have the same words that we're using right now, he's speaking to how we are to conduct ourselves as we live as strangers in an ever-changing culture and world. How many of you agree with me things are changing? How many of you would agree with me that things have changed? And that's what we're facing right now. In the, in the words of the famous theologian Dorothy Gale of the Wizard of Oz, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. It's in the Greek, you can find it. See, Peter's assessing the swift moving current of an ever changing world, a current that author Rod Dreyer would call liquid modernity. This concept being best described by sociologist and philosopher Philip Rice as he writes this. This is what he says. Religious man was born to be saved. Psychological man, our current culture, is born to be pleased. And it's in this pleasure-oriented society that we live in that we find ourselves drifting further and further and further away from God. How many of you agree with me? And then what we start doing as we start to drift further and further, like, have you ever seen a, a child who doesn't know how to swim get into a pool and as they're, like they're on a floaty, you know, like a unicorn floaty? <laughs> Some of the wives in here, like my husband, was actually on that same floaty during vacation. So you, you have this child on the floaty and, and they don't realize they're starting to drift. They don't know a parent put them on the floaty. They start to drift, start to drift. And then the child realizes how far from the edge they've, they've gotten. And all of a sudden, they start to kind of panic and freak out. And here's what I, I feel like is happening and what I'm kind of noticing in our culture is that we're drifting, 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 and we turn our heads and realize, how did we get here? And we start to freak out a little bit. And then in doing so, we want to try to draft Jesus into our cultural philosophies and reality. And then we create this Frankenstein type of faith that doesn't make sense. So we start parsing things in, and then we say things like, God, God is love, for sure. But what we really mean by God is love is that God loves me and wants me to do everything that I want to do. And there's no ramifications or, or situations that, that are going to come from that. And because he's so good and because he's so loving, I can just like live and do and be. And Peter's going, actually, no, that's not, that's not the truth. God's love is God's love and it transforms us and it changes us. 
He's a good father, so he wants to make sure that we are we're connected to him in a certain way, so that we can we can wander our way through this this moment that we find ourselves in culturally. But we've got to understand that God has a way He's called us to live. Come on, somebody. And this is why it's offensive. This is why this subject matter is offensive. Is because for a long time, for the past twenty years in churches, we've called this type of conversation legalism. We said that's legalistic. If, if, if anybody, if the pastor preaches on on any type of issues that have to do with my behavior, that's just legalism. No, it's not. This is legalism. By definition, legalism is me standing up here and telling you that the only way that you have eternity and salvation is by earning it. That's legalism. So you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this in order to earn God's love. That's legalism. We're not talking about legalism because I would declare to you today that you and I are saved by grace, God's grace. You can't earn it, you can't buy it. Oh, but because of His great love, it should change the way that we conduct ourselves. So there's, you guys see the difference? That's, that's what I want to poke into today. So while Peter didn't have the terminology that we have, this is why verses 17 through the 19. The, the argument for Peter really hinges on these verses. I want to read it one more time because I want you to see what he says. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially, according to each one's work, you are to conduct. Everybody shout conduct. So there's a behavior-oriented issue that he's talking about. Yourselves in, here's another one, reverence. During your time living as strangers. And what, he, what he's saying right there is you're not a part of this world. You're in this world, but you're not a part of it. This is the, the time between now and not yet. For you know that you were redeemed from your... Now, he's going to define how our life was pre-Jesus. Empty way of life. My goodness. This is why I love the Bible so much. And then he's going to say, this is, you've inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like gold or silver, the things that you normally inherit. He says, but with the precious blood of Christ, that of an unblemished, spotless lamb, that you've been changed because of this blood, because of the goodness of Jesus, your empty way of life is no more. You have a different life in him. Peter's goal in writing this was to highlight God's concern as to how we live and conduct our lives as we find ourselves living as strangers in this world, the space between now and not yet. Paul the Apostle would write concerning this issue in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. He said this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. And he says this, Do not be conformed to this. Let me shout this word out. It's age. Age. So he's talking more. He's not saying just like, hey, he's not just saying don't be conformed to this world, but he's, he's talking about the age. And so there's a spiritual dynamic, there's a cultural dynamic, there's a societal dynamic that he's trying to get at. He's saying, so it's not just about being conformed to the world. He's saying, don't conform to this age. Don't, don't conform to the air that's around you. Don't be lulled into looking the same, uh, the same way as those around you or the world around you. I need you to understand that you've been called, set apart, to stand out from, to be a holy people in the midst of everything that we know as a brave new world. Now, here's what I love. I don't just read this scripture, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, just because it's a supporting scripture, but because of what Peter later writes in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 18. Watch this. Sorry, as, a, as a Bible person, I get amped on things like this, okay? So if I seem a little excited, this is why. Watch what happens. He says, therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, everything that he's talked about in his two letters, Make every effort to be found with spot, without spot or blemish in his sight, at peace. 
also regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear, here's, here he says, our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all of his letters. What? Peter's now saying, listen, I want you to remember everything that Paul has said in his letters as well. So now he's affirming for us everything that we find in the New Testament, the New Testament letters. And then he goes on to say this also. He says, there are some things hard to understand in them. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of the Scriptures. Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to be to Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Come on, is anybody thankful for God's Word today? Okay, so let's pause for a moment. This is where I really, everybody just lean forward, lean forward in your seats, stay with me. This is where we're going to go down the philosophical road for a moment. Some of you actually leaned in, thank you. I love you more. We need to, we need to take a, a stroll down philosophical lane, if you will. I want to also say this as just a heads up. Um, a lot of what I'm going to be uh, saying right now is adapted from a book um, by the author Rod Dreyer. The book is called The Benedict Option. A lot of the notes that I'm going to be uh, uh, just kind of rattling off uh, are, are his thoughts. So I'm going to be quoting a lot of things, and then I'm going to interject some of my own thoughts and ways. That works for everybody? Uh, this is a beautiful book that I just read, and uh, I wanted to share. I loved his snapshot of philosophy over the centuries. All right, so here's a brief view of philosophical progression. 14th century, between the years 13 and 1400. Uh, to quote Rob Dreyer, says, This is the defeat of metaphysical realism by nominalism and medieval theological debates removed the linchpin linking the transcendent and the material world. Don't worry, I'll say something to like, drill it down. In nominalism, the meaning of objects and actions in the material world depends, enti- depends entirely on what man assigns it. War and plague brought the medieval system crashing down. In other words, there is a shift in belief and acknowledgement of the transcendent and the spiritual. This is the beginning of the Renaissance man. The catalytic event being war and the plague, and this brings about the change in thinking and behavior. So the Renaissance man, what we used to believe leading up until the 14th century is that every truth was outside of us and we were searching for truth. What starts to take place in the 14th century is that men's man, that's man and woman, starts to look inward and believe that the truth is in us. We become the center. This is the beginning of this thought process of we becoming the center of the universe. Key figures, just throw a few guys up that you'll be able to see here. Uh, so I don't butcher their names William of Ockham, uh, John Burdain, and Nicole Orsman. Okay, those are a few of the names. I thought I butchered them. Just go with it. I'm going to go phonetically. Okay, so a lot of philosophy ramped up outside the university. Here's some other, you'll recognize one of these names Dante. Right, the Divine Comedy. This is where we're going to get a picture of a lot of, funny enough, a lot of our perspective of hell is built off of Dante's The Divine Comedy. When he gives us pictures of hell and eternity in heaven, which are in some ways actually standing outside of a biblical truth narrative. But that's where a lot of our, our thoughts and ideas concerning eternity was, uh, was formed. 15th century, the Renaissance dawned with new optimistic, once again quoting, outlook on human potential and began shifting the West's vision and social imagination from God to man, whom it saw as the measure, I want you to hear this language, the measure of all things. This is where we start to see the birth of humanism. 
humanism would eventually start to, I'm going to call it, devolve into secular humanism. And this is where things really start ramping up and a lot of things start turning and faith is being questioned and God, the universe, everything around is starting to be questioned. So now, the, now the, the wheels are moving on this whole thing. We come to the 16th century. The Reformation broke the religious unity of Europe. You see the divide, the Protestant faith starts to come out. Remember that cat named Luther? He had a thesis, he nailed it to a door and everything went bananas. Catholic Church started freaking out. He just got all these thoughts. You're going to see Luther. Let's shift to some of the names in here. Luther and Calvin are some guys, right? That we're going to um, that we're going to see in this period, in this moment, and that's where we're having an existential crisis in religion and faith. Details are getting hammered out. Things are are being talked about. The Catholic Church is doing what they're doing, and atrocities are being committed in the name of, of faith and religion. So, just so you know, as a, as a person who enjoys history, I would full well affirm that the church has done some bizarre and albeit stupid stuff over the course of history. In the name of faith, this is where things really got interesting. 17th century, the wars of religion resulted in the further discrediting of religion and the founding of the modern nation state. The scientific revolution struck the final blow to the organic medieval model of the cosmos, replacing it with a vision of the universe as a machine. This is where it gets weird. The mind-body-spirit proclaimed by certain philosophers applied this to the body. Man became alienated from the natural world. We started to kind of stand our own in this weird place, more machine-oriented. In other words, better put, Culture finds itself at an existential crisis. Massive questions, critique and doubt, all with vast implications on humanity. Y'all still with me? Y'all still with me? We've got to go through this to get to the, to get to the very, very the catalytic moment, and then we'll get practical, okay? This is the rise of the cynic. Doubt everything. Everything is untrue. Let me do what I'm talking about. Burn it all down. Noble figures, William Shakespeare, Francis Bacon, Rene Descartes, John Locke, 17th century. Now we move to 18th century. The Enlightenment attempted to create a philosophical framework for living in and governing society absent of religious reference. Reason would be the, the pole star of public life. Again, I'm quoting, with religion considered, here it is, a burden from the dark ages relegated to private life. The French and American revolutions broke with the old regimes and their hierarchies and inaugurated a democratic, egalitarian age. This is where we see some of the most significant shifts of society and culture and faith take place. As faith and religion is then relegated to the private sector of your life, it's good if you want to believe what you want to believe privatized. But it's no longer going to be a framework of our culture and our society. You see where this is going? This is important for us because, once again, I think many of us are struck almost kind of sideswiped by what's happened. Like, how did we get here? And how many of you agree with me? If we're going to do a series called You Are Here, we have to know how we got here. Notable figures of this period, big hitters. Voltaire, David Hume, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Immanuel Kant. These are massive thinkers, philosophical minds. And they're going to charge with the leading edge of what we would come to know as postmodernism. 19th century. The success of the Industrial Revolution polarized the Argarian way of life, uprooted masses from rural areas, brought them into the cities. Relations among people came to be defined by money. The Romantic movement rebelled against this alienation in the name of individualism and passion. Atheism and Marxist influenced progressive social reforms spread among cultural elites. 
At this point, the cultural title, title is, had all but hit, and it left society in shambles. People grasping for their identity, trying to figure out what's going on, both collectively and individually. It's in this century that we have some very influential thinkers and philosophers, many of which you would know. They've actually become what I would call cultural idols, or dare I say, cultural deities. Here's a few of the names. Jane Austen, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Karl Marx, Rostovsky, Tolstoy, Frederick Nietzsche. You recognize some of these names? 20th century. Then it goes Buck Wild. Don't know what I'm talking about. Ever just say Buck Wild? It's okay. Say it in church. It goes Buck Wild. Okay? Listen to this quote. The horrors of the two world wars severely damaged faith in the gods of reason and progress and in the god of Christianity. With the growth of technology and the mass consumer society, people began to pay more attention to themselves and to fulfilling their individual desires. The sexual revolution exalted the desiring individual as the center of the emerging social order, disposing and enfeebled Christianity as the Ostrogoths disposed the hapless last emperor of the Western Roman Empire in the fifth century. Big words. In other words, the god of reason and the god of the Bible began to fight it out. Reason supported by the advancement of technology as well as featured uh, in self-orientation to which the individuals are now the purveyor of our greatest truths. It's in this century we begin to see played out before our eyes the crisis of identity, family, sexuality, gender, general ethics, politics, faith, and what used to be secure pillars of human thought. Here's some big names. We recognize some of these guys as well. Sigmund Freud, John Dewey, Bertrand Russell, Michael Foucault. Hitler. These are big names. What I want us to see and I want us to hear is that as Peter speaks to us about living with reverence and conduct that's God honoring, he was calling us to something that he knew was going to be necessary for these moments. But I also want us to see that the moment that we are in right now is not as difficult as we think it is because it's nothing new. The only difference is that we can tweet about it now. We can hashtag things. And so what's happening right now in our culture, I want us to know, is it's not anything new and it shouldn't be as scary as it is to many of us. We shouldn't be retreating from it, but rather we should be learning to stand in it. As we raise our families and as we raise our kids, my, my boy was sitting on the front row in the first service. I want to be the type of father, I want to be the type of pastor that says, hey, listen, we can actually look at these things and we can work through them and work with them. And we can be the type of people that with faith, till Jesus comes back or he takes us home, can stand on the truth of the word of God. And how we conduct ourselves matters. Complete word study dictionary gives us a very important definition for reverence. It says this a deep and reverential sense of accountability. There's an accountability to God. But as we discovered last week, how many of you agree with me? Many of us don't want to be accountable to God. We want God to be accountable to us. There's that philosophical term that we're the center of things. And so the question that we need to be asking ourselves is that how? How do we live? In this moment, how do we live in this cultural moment? How do we live in this time? How do we work through these things, given this is what we've been taught in, what we're working with or against? And, and how do we stand with strong faith? I don't know if you've asked yourself in that over the past. Is this all right with everybody? Do you all see where I'm trying to go with this? 
How do we stand in the midst of this culture? Not in a way that's arrogant, not in a way that pushes against people, but rather in a way that actually helps us love people. But that we don't lose ourselves in the mix of what's going on around us. Because we have to go this direction. If we're going to just read verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and he's going to say, listen, this is, you are called to holy living. How do we do that? How do we, how do we reorient our lives in such a way that we, that we stay suspended in the goodness of God's Word and His truth for us? That's what we're really trying to target today. So Peter gives us three truths. He offers God is just three truths for living in a brave new world, and that's what I want to finish our time on today. Y'all with me? Here's the first one. I need your help over shot number one. Here's the first one. We need a glory-gripped mind. We need a glory-gripped mind. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13 says, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded, and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. The mind is a very important faculty in our lives of faith, yet many of us never regard it as such. We have to remember that the impact and potency of God's grace and presence and power should be felt in every area of our lives. In, in his book, Live No Lives, John Mark Comer, uh, as I, I just got done reading this book recently, he, he gave this illustration that I thought was fascinating. And, he says, it's according to legend, so hold it loosely, but he says, according to legend, the Knights Templar, before they would go out and fight, they would be baptized. And before they were baptized, they would hop in the water with their swords. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a really cool spiritual moment. Everything's going to get baptized. And then he spins it on you. No, 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 that's not what they did. As they were baptized, they would hold their swords above the water, signifying that, God, you can have everything except this. And I thought, man, what an interesting moment, because that's how a lot of us approach things. We go into the waters of baptism, we say, God, you can have almost everything except this, and, and this, and this. And for many of us, you can have everything except my mind. God, you can have everything except my except this, because I really like this. You can have everything except this relationship, because I, I really need this. You can, you can have everything except my money, because my money is what makes me. You can have everything except my education because my education is what the... Am I talking to anybody right now? We can, you can have anything you want except for the things that I tell you you cannot have. So when we talk about the mind, we're dealing with so much more than just thinking happy thoughts. Yet that's what many of us talk it up to. We create a kind of gospel, a Peter Pan gospel, as I call it, in which we believe that we can just think happy thoughts and we will fly. so much more to our minds. Paul would encourage us to take our thoughts captive. Jesus would call us to not worry. Peter says we must have an action ready. Or the King James Version says it like this. We have to gird up the loins of our mind. Come on, somebody. Good old King James Version. We have to gird up. So I want to explain that to us. Gird up the loins of our mind. Okay? Because no one talks about your mind that way. No one's like, I don't say to my boy in the morning, hey, gird your loins in your mind. I don't say that. It'd be fun, but I don't say it. So it's an Old Testament reference, and it's a cultural reference, and this is what I was referencing. So during that time, they would wear long robes or outer garments that would uh, they would drag across the ground. 
And so to gird something up was to take your robe or your outer garment and you would pick it up and you would fold it into your belt. And this would allow you to walk faster, get work done, and do what you needed to do with confidence and not having anything obstruct you. So when Peter says you need to gird up the loins of your mind, he's saying you need to pick them up. You need to get an action ready so that nothing distracts you, nothing lulls you to sleep, nothing gets in here that you don't want in there. You gotta gird up the loins of your mind. This is the image that Peter wants us to have. Then he says you need to be sober minded. He uses the Greek word mesteo. In the context of Peter's writing, this means to to not be to have a sober mind. He's not talking about like don't get drunk. That's other pieces of scripture. Don't get drunk, okay? So but he's not talking about that. This is what he's talking about. He's saying, don't let your mind become intoxicated with the world around you. Don't be lulled to sleep. Don't find yourself drowsy and apathetic. Have, and this, this is what it means, to have your spiritual wits about you. And then lastly, he says, our mind needs to be set on the hope of the grace of Jesus. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. So we need to have a clear mind for many of us. And I just want to venture out there to say many of us, this is what we struggle with in our minds. The thoughts that we think, the things that we focus on. We're going to do some work in this area as we progress into the series. Remember, this is like 30,000 feet. We're still in the introductory uh, re- realities of this, of this series, of this, of this message series. But we're going to work on what does it look like to set our minds on Christ? It's all about the, what does it mean to just put it, like, put it on Him? Because how many of you agree with me? Like, show of hands, therapeutic moment. We think about many other things besides Jesus. Right? Now, I have one of my, one of the unique things about my personality is I'm extremely obsessive. And so I have a tendency that once I get focused on something, I get focused on something. Anybody else like me in that? Like, I got into fly fishing, and it was like two seconds, and I bought everything. I went for everything. I'm watching YouTube. I'm subscribing to magazines. I'm studying the Bible or bugs. Those are the two things that I was studying. That was it. Like, I'm obsessed. There goes like, she like looks at me. She rolls her eyes because she knows this is how I get my sons like that as well. But here's what's interesting about it because I know this about myself. I also have to pay very close attention to what I allow in. So I am militant when it comes to the things that I watch, the things that I listen to, the things that I see, the people I'm around. Because my mind's obsessive. It's a powerful part of who we are. And here's what's so crazy is that for many of us, if we know that about our minds, we continue to put ourselves in positions and places and spaces and with people where our mind can get confused so easily. Do you guys see what I'm talking about here? This is really important for us. But this is, this is, this is why I've got to make sure I don't turn social media on to the best of my ability every day for hours at a time. Not the best of it, but my mind will get focused on something. I gotta pay attention to the movies that I watch, the music that I listen to. He's like, oh, that sounds really prudish. No, I'm protecting this thing that God said gird up. So your mind, you need a glory gripped mind. Let me ask you this question. Is your mind stationed upon the goodness and the glory of God? Number two, here's the second thing. Did we say number two? Second thing we need is we need a new nature identity. We need a new nature identity. First Peter chapter 1, verse 14 says this, is obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. 
Two aspects of this identity are highlighted for us. Peter first says that our identity is shaped by familial belonging. He calls us obedient children. So how many of you know that as children, that means you belong to a family? That's what he's trying to highlight for us. So, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your... And then he says this, former ignorance. So what he's doing is he's doing to compare and contrast. He says, listen, outside of Christ, you had a former ignorance. Now, in Christ, you have truth that's been revealed to you, and therefore, it should be transformative in your life. So our identity, our new nature identity, is the product of a new family and new truth. These two things cause us to live out our lives differently than we did before. My mom, my mom is on the front row. She just moved here. Praise the Lord. Um, and my mom was an amazing mom. And one of the things that she used to say a lot to me, a lot to me, was um, was this phrase right here. Maybe maybe you've, maybe you've heard it before. You know better than this. Like I said, she said it a lot to me. <laughs> Come on, how many of you have ever had that said to you before? You know better than that. You know better than that. Come on. Parents, how many times have you said this now, saying that we weren't going to say it? And we say it. You know better. What was she assessing in my life? What she was assessing was that you've been raised a certain way, and certain truth has been spoken to you, and so you know better than this. That's what Peter's saying right here. He says, listen, if we understand that we are now sons and daughters of God, we have a new family, come on somebody, and because truth has been given to us, we should live our lives in such a way that brings glory and honor to God. Why? Because we know better and because we are different children now at the end of the day. Now, my identity is, I don't have to go back to the things of old, I don't have to be controlled by the things of old, but rather I can step into what God has for me because I've been called out of my former ignorance and I am now a child of God. And for some of us, this is jacked up because we have really crappy families. Yes, I just said that in church today. It went really quiet in here. <laughs> and so for us, here's what we do. We project the most broken of things in our lives onto the one who is completely perfect. And I just need to let you know today that God rejects that. You can't project onto God what He cannot. Just because you experience brokenness in your family doesn't mean He's a broken God. Come on. And we can actually run to Him. Just because your dad was horrible, your mom was horrible, doesn't make God horrible. That's why He's saying you've been called into a new family. That's what I love about the church is that this, 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 every single weekend, just so you know, this is, like, let's stop calling it church. Let's just call it a family gathering. This is a family reunion. We've got crazy uncles in here. Right? Loud aunts. <laughs> Part of the new family, Paul would say it like this, the new father to which you, you cry, Abba, Father, Daddy God. That's important for some of us to know because where we came from, Here's the third truth that Peter offers us. So the first thing he says is that if you're going to stand in a brave new world, we need a glory grip mind. We need a new nature identity. And here's the last and final truth is that we need Christ-centered conduct. Christ-centered conduct. First Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 17 says this, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all of your conduct. How many of you agree with me right now? Let me just pause for just a second. 
How many of you would agree with me that that is a, that is a hard statement to hear? That you should be holy in all of your conduct. Because if you're like me, if you read it, you're like, all? All my conduct? Like, you can't just, like, curse one person? <laughs> that really annoying. Somebody said this the other day I was reading. It was actually an amazing quote. Saying, many of us get tripped up on what is the will of God for my life. You ever asked that before? What is God's will for my life? Well, there's a lot of things we can get into. He goes, if you want to know if you're in the will of God for your life, ask yourself this question. Does it bring glory to Him? And I thought, my goodness. How simple is that? You can ask yourself, is what I'm doing right now bringing glory to God? Is what I'm looking at right now bringing glory to God. Oh, am I up in some of your business? <laughs> is what I'm listening to right now bringing glory to God? Is how I'm acting right now bringing glory to God? Is what I'm saying to my wife right now bringing glory to God? Is what I'm saying to my husband right now bringing glory to God? Is what I'm doing with my singleness right now bringing glory to God? Is this person that I'm, I'm engaged with right now, this, this dating relationship, is what, we're, is what we're doing bringing glory to God? Oh, that sounds so fundamental and prudish, Jason. I'm not, I'm not, these are not my words. Everything that we do. Can I be vulnerable with you for a second? One of the reasons that a lot of this hasn't been said in a really long time is because we've been spent the past 20 years feeding the messenger. Think about this. We want the pastor to preach the word. Then he preaches the word. We, go, we don't want the pastor to preach the word. <laughs> and so we're taught in between it. It's like, what, what, what do we want to do? And I've just got to resolve in my spirit right now that hopefully you can just give me a little bit of latitude here. And these are not my words. Like, listen, how you do your life and what you decide to do in light of God, that is completely up to you. But I want us to know this simple truth right here. How I live matters. It matters. At the end of the day, how I do this life matters. Our patterns, our habits, our choices, they all matter, and it has collateral damage. so many moments where I'm, I'm paying attention to how I'm doing my life because I want my son to grow a certain way because I can't always tell him everything. i got to show him things. Come on, how many of you know what I'm talking about? It's one thing to say, son, this is how you do this, and this is how you do this, and this is how you do this, and it's another thing for him to step back one day and go, dad actually didn't really tell me how to do much of it. I just watched his life, and I want that one. I want that life. I want that marriage. I want... All these philosophies that we just talked about over the past little while, they come down to this truth right here, is that self is the center of the universe. The truth of this word right here is that Jesus is the center of the universe. We've got to reckon with which one we're going to adhere to. So today I hope that you can kind of feel and see where I'm coming from. Because to an unbelieving world, how are unchanged lives supposed to bring testimony about the goodness and the love of Jesus? And that's why Peter would say, verses 18 through 23, For you know that you were redeemed from this empty way of life, 
heritage opinion and ancestors, not with perishable things like gold, silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world that was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that you may put your faith and your hope in God. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, to a pure heart, love one another constantly because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, let's hear a shout it. Amen. Amen. You to stand your feet in this moment as we get ready to dismiss. A couple weeks ago, on our the beginning of the year Vision Sunday, those of you guys remember this, but we talked about becoming a hundred year church. We talked about all the things that we're going to do and everything that was a part of our vision. We talked about different ministry initiatives, giving and serving and all the different things that are a part of that. But I want you to know that part of becoming a hundred-year church, being a church that stands for this next generation who's sitting up front right now and many others in this room, part of it is making sure that we are anchored as Christ follows in orthodoxy, the truth of God's Word. We can't shift from it or deviate from it. I know that for Erica and I right now, we feel a very strong sense this is something that we really feel like God has put on our shoulders right now and in our hearts right now to be truth seekers and truth tellers. That's our mandate right now as a church. And I just want to once again affirm and declare to you as a church that the things that you hear from this pulpit are going to be anchored in this book right here. This is how we stand. This is what we need. This is what we need for parenting. This is what we need for marriages. This is what we need for health. This is what I need for my mind. This is what I need for my heart. This is what I need for my soul. This is what I need for my singleness. This is what I need for my relationship. This is what I need in my older years, in my younger years. This is what our teens need. This is what our young adults need. This is what our young professionals need. This is what our 30-something couples need. This is what you need in mid-age. This is what you need in later age. This is what you, this is the food for life. I hope over the coming weeks, months, and years out here, I really hope that we just become the type of church that's just so geeked up on God's word. Like, and I'm amped, you can't, I, like, I'm amped on this stuff right now. I've been for a long time, but like, I've, I've never done a series like this before, so I'm just trying to get us to like, all right, we can, we can do this. Y'all with me? I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes in this moment. I know what brought you in here today. I know for many of us in this room today, we're here because we only just enjoy being here and secondarily we call ourselves followers of Jesus. But right now in this room, I would also know that there's some of us in here today who have yet to say yes, yet to cross that line and say, I want to follow Jesus. Place our lives in His and trust our lives to His grace and goodness and follow Him. So what I want to do today is I just want to give us an opportunity to do that, to say yes to that. For some of us in the room today, this message is just hitting you 
like this point blank right in the middle of the eye. You know, I've been following the world's way, the world's philosophy. It's time to, it's time to shift. It's time to leave that empty way of life, and it's time to step into everything that Jesus has. So we're going to bow to every eye closed, and no one looking around in this moment. We're going to pray a prayer all together. And I don't want to leave anybody out, so I'm going to invite all of us to pray together so that we can stand with those of us today who are saying, for the first time, yes to Jesus. Nothing fancy in these words, but rather the heart from which they come out of. So if that's you today, pray this prayer with us. Let's do it all together with just faith and expectancy right now. Would y'all repeat this after me? Everybody say, Jesus, I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you my past. I'm giving you my right now. And I'm putting my future in your hands. Save me. Change me. Make me new. And I declare in this moment that I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. I'm turning from my ways. I want to follow your ways. So help me live a life in reverence to you. I give you my mind. I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I give you every inch of me. Have your way in my life. In Jesus' mighty name. Every head bowed and every eye closed. If you prayed that prayer for the first time today, come on, would you just shoot your hand up right now? I just want to know that you're with us today. You're saying yes to Jesus right here, 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 right here. Come on, anybody else say right over here, buddy, right over here, right over here in the back. I see you guys with hands up there. Come on, anybody else say that saying this is me, this is my moment of saying yes to Jesus. Come on, anybody else say, hey, can we lift our hands? Can we just celebrate all those saying yes to Jesus today? Once again, solidify our hearts and our minds that you would keep us, you would safe in our 